This is a show where we talk about an idea, concept, theme, trend, and relate it to some kind of media like film, TV, video games, books, music, and hopefully discover something about ourselves or our culture along the way. Thanks for listening. Okay, welcome to the show. This is Extra Textual. I'm Eli Steenlidge, and with me is... Jeremy Holiday, And we're really excited about this episode because uh, we have a special guest with us, Annalise Ophelian. How are you doing this evening? Hey, I'm doing fine. How are you guys doing? We're doing great. Mm-hmm. We're excited because we get to talk about more Star Wars on this episode. This has kind of become a little bit of an unofficial Star Wars podcast. <laughs> Almost it, for a while here, it was like every other episode, we yeah. just kind of bounce back to some Star Wars because there's so much going on. But um, we're not complaining because no. we really enjoy that. And um, we've been trying to get Annalise on the show for a while to talk about um, the documentary project. Uh, that she is working on um, as a part of. So I'm going to let you, Annalise, kind of um, describe your background and um, this project you're working on. Yeah, you bet. So I'm a documentary filmmaker, and uh, my work has traditionally focused on you know, kind of typical documentary stories, right, which is like mm-hmm. folks who are like living at the intersections of marginalized communities and have a kind of unique story of resilience or survival. Um and this project, Looking for Leia, is about fangirls. It's about girls and women in Star Wars fandom and the things that make them slash us love the galaxy far, far away. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I spent the better part of 14 months uh, traveling around. I ended up interviewing just over 100 women and non-binary folks about the ways that their Star Wars fandom showed up in their lives. And I'm now happily in post-production getting to, mm-hmm. to sort of dissect all of this all of this footage and and put it together into a final project which i'm hoping will kind of shift the the narrative lens uh through which we tend to look at geek culture um and i think in doing so bring some really exciting and interesting new perspectives on the way that um that fandom operates in our daily lives cool can i ask you a technical question Um, you bet how many hours of footage did you get that's a great question. I do not know what the actual hour amount is. And a part of that is because, of course, everything is like in tons of different files. Yeah. I will tell you, it's it's 4K footage, and it's taking up wow. the better part of 20 terabytes right now. Yikes. Respectable. So yeah. there's that. And then also, I my editing process is very... Um, it, I edit like a qualitative researcher. So I transcribe everything, oh, and then wow. I code my transcripts. So my... My, tr- my first transcript without the appendix was 809 single-spaced, double-sided mm. pieces of paper. Um, that's great. Yeah, that's it's a, really exciting. That's a project, yeah. It's a project. <laughs> yeah. It's a project, yep. Is this so one, a lot. Is, is this one of the largest projects you've worked on? Would you say you as know, far as like the amount of interviews? Yeah, interviews? oh, for sure. In terms mm-hmm. of the number of interviews. The last project that I worked on, I think I ended up having 23 or 24 interview participants. Mm-hmm. And that felt like madness. That felt like, wow, yeah. how will I ever manage? Um, and then, of course, that was a biographical documentary. So I also had my kind of primary subject who I ended up talking to mm-hmm. in a series of interviews over the course of a year. Um so that was, you know, certainly a lot of footage to manage. Yeah. This is certainly the most, just in terms of the sheer number of people, some of whom I had very long conversations with, some of whom I had incredibly short conversations with, like at cons and things yeah. like that. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I think that's that's pretty amazing, and that's a great question, Jeremy, because I don't think people <laughs> like realize how much work that is to whittle yeah. down and find those key points that you that you want to make in the film and how, mm. to, how to craft that sort of into a coherent like story or argument um, to be able to do so. It's, yeah. a, it's a daunting task. Yeah, I remember when I made like the only documentary film I ever made was feature length, but I, I had, you know, this was back in the days of DV, like mini DV. I, I you know, after Oof. about a year and a half of acquisition, I had like over a hundred um, hour, over a hundred hour long mini DV tapes. Um, when I started, I was like, oh my gosh, how am I going to fill 90 minutes? You know, and then it just seems <laughs> like this tiny, tiny little mm. postage stamp that I have to fit everything in. Right. Um, That's it. So when you approached this project, did you, have a sense of the story that you were going to tell with this footage? Um, or did you discover the story that you ultimately told along the way? I think it's always the latter with documentary, you know, and it's one of the reasons why documentary takes so much longer than narrative does. I think most documentarians have an idea of a topic. Yeah. Like we, we see a phenomenon and we want to know more. And so there's this like entry point, like, hey, tell me about this. And then, you know, like maybe 50% of the time, maybe less, your film is actually about that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's about the, what your entry point was. And in this case, you know, I started out wanting to talk with girls and women in Star Wars fandom. And that is what I was able to stick with. Um, I think very often with documentary, that isn't the case at all, right? Like you start... Um, I saw this amazing film actually at the um, Arab American Film Festival here in San Francisco like mm -hmm. three weeks ago, um, Wadu, which is, um, it's just like beautiful. It started off as a sort of, I'm going to go to Syria and talk with folks about um, a sort of, you know, religious musical tradition. And then of course the civil war happened and all of his mm -hmm. participants ended up having to um, become asylum seekers. And then he ended up with a different documentary, yeah. which was like following these folks. So I'm going wildly off topic for you. But this is all to say, um, in this particular case, I knew the thing I wanted to make, yeah. um, but I went in with this open-ended question, which is just sort of what is the role that this fandom um, takes in your life and what is the purpose that it serves? And then from that, folks answered that question and I kind of followed those answers with more questions. And then from that, um, part of why I code and transcribe and everything is that the people who I interviewed really tell me what the film is about. Mm -hmm. And so... That's the process that's, um, you know, a little laborious. Um, and I've been engaged in since the end of the summer, and it's really exciting to be actually editing now. Um, but yeah, from that, you start looking at basically like subordinate and superordinate themes. Like what are the big themes and then what are the smaller themes underneath that that yeah. folks are, are sharing? Um, but it's nice because it keeps it, I mean, there's different ways of doing documentary, and I do think we're in this like documentary renaissance right now. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm which is great. Um, what tends to be like super Netflix popular is, um, you know, like a, either a, you know, miss, uh, won't you be my neighbor, a kind of compelling mm. biographical documentary about a known figure or a more traditional, um, documentary that has this like deep character story with like conflict and arc and drama and yeah, yeah. all of that. And, and this is a little less than that. This is more of a phenomenological piece. Mm. Like it is about the phenomenon of fandom and how mm. it shows up in people's lives and how kind of diverse and rich that is. Well, I wanted to, this is sort of like on the topic of um, like the hard work of taking those 100 people and those 800 and so pages. I was, I was just in a coffee shop the other day and I, I overheard a conversation. I, you know, I'm not doing that. I'm not like representing the person in a very good light, but it was just this man who was just like, yeah, like I just don't do anything that's tedious. 
<laughs> I just cataloged in my head like the things that I like to do, like painting miniatures, building Legos, um, like making films, doing woodworking, um, yep. like literally everything that I like doing is tedious. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, and because it's, you know, I mean, like it's how you get something that's awesome, mm. like being able to yeah. make all those tiny changes. That investment in it, yeah. So there well, was of course, this... this is a word choice, right? Because like, one, yeah. one person's tedious is another person's meticulous. Yeah. And like doing things that are meticulous can be like incredibly satisfying. Yeah. yeah. So one of the themes that pops up a little bit in some of the interviews that you have on the website post already is um, uh, women wanting to express the idea that women have always been involved in fandom. Mm. Um, and and is that something like, is that something that you had thought about beforehand, or is that mainly a story that people told you as you asked folks? I mean, that's a story I had some experiential expertise in, I think, right? Because I've been a fan since I, you know, was a was a tiny child. I saw mm -hmm. Star Wars in the theater in 1977. Um, actually, my real entry point into fandom like started with Star Wars, mm -hmm. um, but then I was also like a huge um, sort of stan for Ellen Ripley and the first two Alien films. Um, was a huge TNG fan in the 90s. Mm -hmm. um, was a big Buffy fan. Like my fandom, yeah. you know has I have a it's a poly fandom that has progressed <laughs> over my life uh -huh. um and I did always describe myself to like prospective partners as a teenage boy I was always like look here's the thing to know about me there will be no rom-coms like it has to have a superhero and or a spaceship <laughs> yep. and and many explosions for me to get me in a movie theater to see it mm -hmm. um and that there are just, yeah, that, you know, like I, yes, I do have a complete set of Star Trek The Next Generation trading cards. Like, what of it? Like, these <laughs> these things I knew about myself. Um, I do think that I, and so I always assumed that this was a thing, but I definitely didn't have community. And I feel like the process yeah. of interviewing for this has made me feel um just much more connected. And I think this is a hope I have for audience as well, that to realize that actually these feelings that I've had, the story that I've got of myself is something that I've heard in many, many other women. And I've heard variations of it in so many other people. Um, and, and so I do feel like there's a way in which we're, we're, you know, not being seen as a very different thing than not existing. Yeah. Although they accuse us into why representation is so important, right? Because when yeah. we don't see a thing, we are effectively blotting it out of existence. We're saying it doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, so I knew it, but it was just kind of empowering and amazing to get to, in the process of working on this film, become so much more aware of just like how brilliant and robust and huge, um, you know, over 50% of the world's population's participation <laughs> And yeah. fandom is by the numbers. Yeah. This is a huge group of humans. So yeah, this is absolutely going to show up there. Like this isn't this isn't a, a shock. But yeah, it's it's been amazing to see it. Was Star Wars always the fandom you were kind of thinking of with this topic, or uh, what about Star Wars did you find um, would make a great subject? And the, you know, the fans of it, especially uh, women, um, you thought would be powerful about that fandom. Well, you know, so I, the, this particular project came about um, in the months after I went to my very first Star Wars celebration, which was the one that happened in 2015 in Anaheim. Mm -hmm. And um, I was in post-production on the my previous feature, which had been a pretty traumatic shoot. Um, and, you know, we, there were like many community members who had died in the course of filming it. And we... Um, 
you know, we just, we, there was a lot of experiences of loss mm. throughout the, the process of the project. Um, and it was also a project about a, a elder black transgender woman. And I was, um, you had invited me to kind of be her documentarian and to work on the project, but I was very much in a, how, um, how do I as a white cis woman step into a filmmaking role and um, do this in a way that is res responsible and accountable to the community that I'm actually making a project about. Mm -hmm. And so out of that came this deep sense of like, okay, well, whatever I do next, I'm going to really be in my lane. So like, what's the project mm -hmm. that's in my lane? <laughs> and, yeah. and so kind of jokingly, I was like, well, if I really want to stay in my lane, I'm going to do something about like, you know, geeky women because <laughs> that's like there. I'm just like, here is my footprint. Um, and then, of course, the and so it kind of, you know, I, I jumbled it around in my head a little bit. Originally, it was going to be this like road trip. I was going to, you know, because I love road trips. I was going to oh, road trip yeah. around. And I just figured wherever I go, I'm going to find, you know, Star Wars fans. I'm going to talk with them. And then I was convinced I would get a compelling enough reel together that I was going to get Carrie Fisher's people mm. to grant me an interview. And I was going to kind of wrap it up with her talking about her kind of iconic role and what it meant to be this sort of icon and role model for so many generations. Yeah. Um, of women and then the 2016 election happened mm. um and then carrie fisher passed and there was just this like sense of you know i think leading up to the 2016 election it was like okay this is this is actually a necessary project i'm gonna need something really sweet to be able to like get through this <laughs> so like what can i do that will give me some respite from from the world mm -hmm. and then after carrie died i really felt like the project had, had gone with her um hmm. and my partner actually was the one who was like you i had my tickets to celebration orlando at that point and he was like yeah you you gotta go you gotta go and talk with women this is actually a more important time um and and so that's um, the sort of way that it started with Star Wars. And then as a filmmaker, you know, anytime you can be really specific, it yeah. seems like that helps, right? Because you end up with, even within this, this is like a 41 year trans genre <laughs> or trans media yeah. fa fandom. Mm -hmm. yeah. So much content, like it's, it's entirely too big. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like arguably I could have picked something obscure and <laughs> made my job a little bit easier but it, it, it felt good to say look i can actually do all of this using star wars as the jumping off point so i had another question um so your film is about star wars fans did you have to did you have to seek permission from anyone to do that like can you just talk about star wars and use star wars imagery in your film without asking disney if that's okay well, you can talk about anything you want to talk about in terms of personal experience and like phenomenology. Mm -hmm. But um, when it comes to like intellectual property, most certainly, um, you know, I am a filmmaker. I create my own intellectual property. I have like a real appreciation for what it means <laughs> when artists create a thing. Right. Um, yeah. And then if you take that to the one billionth degree, you get something like Disney, which is like, yeah, no, they are responsible for some of like for all of the most profitable IP on the planet. So absolutely, you you cross your T's and you dot your I's when you're when you're engaged in that process. So early on, I got to kind of show the project and essentially show my intentions. Like this is this is the thing that I'm working on. Yeah. Um, I am focusing on the like personal experiences and expressions of fans, not character critique or content analysis mm -hmm. so much. 
So that that helps, right? Like that gotcha. keeps us in a very clear mm-hmm. fair use area. Yeah. We were early on able to get um, permission to license the rights to some pieces from the original John Williams score, which we recorded with um, singers from the Archer School for Girls in Los yeah, Angeles. Yeah. It, I've heard on some of the clips. Yeah, and so that was really exciting. Like we were, you know, we're very kind of mindful of yeah. when we're using fan expression and fan creation, which of course belongs to fans, yeah. um, versus using something that was created by and is owned by um, Lucasfilm. Where, like in those cases, yeah, you need to license that. You need permission to use that. And is that like, were you able to get that? Be- do you feel like because of the compelling story you told them you're going to tell with this, or more about your like previous work as a like documentary filmmaker? That's a good question. I'd like to think that like anytime I'm able to get access to things, it's because, you know, like I'm a highly skilled film <laughs> professional and I'm creating good work. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I imagine that it has as much to do with who you, who it is you're talking to in, in legal, um, because God knows I've had other times with, with different um, massive studios where um, I've gone for licensing rights and it's not gone so smoothly. Mm. Um, but you know, my, my, my small bit of experience getting to work with... Um, the context that I've had, like, mm-hmm. you know, in talking about the John Williams score and things like that yeah. has just been like tremendously pleasant. So this is a, this is definitely a company that has a keen awareness um, and appreciation for their fans and loves to see a project that's about those fans. So that, that's been really nice. So one of the things that it, as I was watching, like, you know, some of the clips from the uh, folks you have on the website, there's like uh a black woman talking about how like she would like dance around her room to the like Imperial March as a kid, which is, oh, you know, yeah. like something I did. Um, <laughs> and I'm sure something that like tens of thousands yeah. of people did. Um, uh, and I just, is it like, um, it seems like there was a point at, at some point in the past and maybe it's like the point of the internet where like a lot of those folks found each other you know, mm. and had this moment where they're like, Oh my God, you did that. And be like, I did that too. Um, you know, and, and in some sense, like it, it seems like part of what you're documenting um, is is that, but like the the world that happened after that moment. You know, like the um, especially. I mean, some of the uh, like some of the older folks, like the, there's a woman who like um, was writing fanzines. You know, Star Trek back in the day. You know, mm-hmm. um, Maggie, which was yeah. you know, like you know distributed the shared connection. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, but that just seems you know, but. I'm rambling a bit, but um, the folks that like the, the young women that are are getting into Star Wars now are entering in like a totally different world, mm-hmm. where totally. like you know, a, you know, a, a second later after a Google search, they can find you know podcasts, <laughs> you know, like a, a whole world of people just like them mm-hmm. doing this. And I was wondering if there were, um, if in your interviews you were able to sort of see um, like the contrast in generations between like folks that grew up you know, in the 60s and 70s, in the early days of Star Trek, and folks, maybe even their children who grew up later in a, in, in a different world where it was, where it was you know, where, where like Star Wars fans that were women weren't strange. You know, it was a, a totally normal thing you could find anywhere. Right. I mean, it's, I, I would say I definitely could observe those things. And maybe just from my own anecdotal observation without necessarily like saying this is scientific or anything. Um, It's kind of two things I see stand out in that. The ones just naturally like the advent of the internet, right? And the number of women who talk about, particularly Star Wars Twitter, um, as Mm. being this, you know, both 
incredibly important site where they were able to build and find community and like also this hellhole <laughs> that is just like you know kind of this horrible swamp to be navigated you know with yeah. caution um you know both and lots of lots of lots of complexity um and but even before twitter like in the in the 90s and early aughts the sort of aol listservs and yeah. these you know robust like since the internet since the dawn of the internet there has been um star wars space that has been run by and for women so that shift definitely had a lot to do with folks feeling connected. I could not have made this project without social media. Um, I, at one point, was talking with folks in Lahore, Pakistan, and Oaxaca, Mexico, and Osaka, Japan. Mm -hmm. um, if I'd had any kind of budget to travel internationally, <laughs> this project would have been like 90 times bigger than it is already. <laughs> yeah. So so that's huge. But I'll also say the other huge generational demarcation was the prequels. Um, and yeah. I came into this project as like an OT person. <laughs> yeah. Um, Having like grown up with those films, those were my Star Wars. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I kind of conceptualized this film before The Force Awakens had come out. Um, so, you know, mm -hmm. just points yeah. to me for being on the, on the yeah. cusp. Clearly, we're all talking about women in fandom now. Yeah. Um, but, you know, did not resonate with the prequels like most, like many folks, if not most folks of my particular generation um, didn't. And talking with young, younger women, I'm 45, so everyone's younger than me, younger women who, for whom the prequels were their Star Wars, that was yeah. their entry point. And hearing them discuss the emotional significance of those films and the character identification, and also like the cinematic significance and impact, like women have analysis mm -hmm. of the prequels. And I have um, such a greater appreciation for, um, for those stories. I might not have a greater appreciation for the films, but I have a deep appreciation for the stories and I love prequel fans. Um, and I think when we think about like toxic fandom and um, and all of the kind of weird post TLJ mm -hmm. stuff that happened, um, you know, prequel fans were on this significantly earlier. Like yeah. 20 years ago, prequel fans had this in the bag. They knew what it was like to have mm -hmm. everybody jump down their throats and say ridiculous things about the thing that they loved. Right. Um, so that's the other kind of interesting line. Um, and it's it's interesting, I think maybe now as well, and it's a, this next year is the 20th anniversary of The Phantom Menace, um, to see also the, um, you know, I was talking with um, Maggie Novikoska and Tish Wells, who were these like original fanzine folks. Well, Maggie's yeah, from the yeah. 60s and 70s. Um, Tish kind of came in more in the 90s. And at one point, the the um, those conversation topic shifted to the prequels and they both just started talking about plot points because they're writers mm -hmm. and they're like oh yeah so let's talk about like the political intrigue and the layers of <laughs> plot points and they had such and they were both like yeah I don't love the movies but I love the stories let's talk mm -hmm. about what Lucas was doing there mm -hmm. and it was great because we assume people over a certain age are all gonna poo-poo yeah. the prequels the but prequels it's like no no so much appreciation so like i just love hearing things in these more nuanced ways but those mm -hmm. two the internet and the prequels are the two places where i see these big shifts yeah. well i mean I, I gotta say i mean like I, like i saw the prequels you know we're of the same generation kind of so um but i like i i had a friend um he's actually he's older than me and he loved them and he oh, was yeah. like oh jeremy like these are the, their stories are so much better and i was like <laughs> what are you talking about um, but um, it, it was honestly through like two fan pieces that like totally changed my opinion. One of mm -hmm. which I, I, I think I both encountered them on the Mary Sue 
um, for the first time because I read there often. But one is this like analysis of like why like why Amidala dies, which I remember mm. forty mm. to Eli at the time, and it's like I don't know like twenty. It's massive. Yeah, it's it's deep, so right? Deep. Yeah. People yeah. have mm-hmm. theories. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and it was like, because it talks about all the details between like Sidious and Anakin. And I was like, this, yep. you know, and, and it revealed to me this entire story that I <laughs> probably missed the first time through. And I'm like, it's it's genius, you know? And, and it made me look at and love and appreciate the story. Like I, I like my son who who's younger, you know, he's, um he was thinking it was eight at the time when I found the thing. Like we read it together and then we watched the movies because I really wanted him like, this, this is the important From part. From that perspective, yeah. Um, and the other one, one was um it's like this i don't know again like a, a massive tome it's like a sort of like a, a like a cut by cut parallel analysis mm. of the original trilogy and the prequel showing the parallelism it's i, I mm. think it's it, 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 i think it has the name of like ring theory i don't know if you've read mm. this one yeah but like it, it, it you know and it and it shows like with pictures how it's almost a complete mirror like the prequels are almost a complete mirror image of both the story and the visuals of the original, including like wipes going in the opposite direction. Yeah. Was, like, the amount of forethought, and, and it just it gave me a whole new perspective on the films that I would not have even you're, you're came across. Something. Yeah. Had, had it not yeah. been for some fans, you know, and I assume some yeah. younger fans really devoting some time to enlighten the rest of us about it. Yeah, yeah. Fan analysis is amazing, right? Like, and of course now we have fan academics, so now that you can right. actually write a thesis yeah. or a dissertation on this, mm-hmm. which I just love. Yeah. I did have a question. My daughter is almost three. And so uh, since I have two older um, children, two boys, that they are watching Star Wars because we watch it together. So she's just like picking it up right away. Um, Mm -hmm. And she came around right in time for Rey, who she always talks about when we talk about Star Wars. Um, But it's she's brought a new perspective because no matter what sort of like geeky thing we watch, she sort of like latches onto the female character. Mm-hmm. And then and it's made me sort of notice how few <laughs> like strong <laughs> female characters like, oh, there's that one woman in this or this yep. one girl. Uh, and it's great to have the focus on female characters, I think, in these um, new Disney films. Um, mm. But I would be interested to hear, you know, some of your personal story of maybe what you saw in Leia originally and maybe some specific stories you've heard in your project um, of what the female characters have meant uh, in specific ways. Oh, yeah. I mean, for me, I resonated deeply with Leia um, as this, like, bossy brunette (laughs) person. Like, I was a a bossy child. Like, I've been bossy (laughs) since birth. Um, and, um, And there was a way in which she gave permission to be in leadership and to be bossy and to not have to make herself small um, or uh, or palatable to others mm. that just deeply resonated. Like she didn't need permission. And I think that gave me um, yeah, just like a lot of, and then of course, you know, like Ellen Ripley being like my next kind of like <laughs> female heroines shortly after that, like these, these badass brunette women, which yeah. I, and I would also say like, um, um, Karen Raven's, I always, it's not Raven's Claw because that's Harry Potter. It's Ravenswood (laughs) from um, Raiders. Um, And Linda Carter is Wonder Woman. Like, this is my, like, 
quartet of, of um, strong brunettes in the 70s um, and 80s who were like there. So, so Leia certainly did that for me. But I think it's much more in the first two films, I'm queer. And there was definitely this moment when like the when Leia's story was going to be about Leia and Han, mm-hmm. that I was just kind of like, eh. Um, <laughs> and you know, like, even as a tiny yeah. child, I was just like, this is not compelling to me. I'm not compelled. Um, I did become very interested in being Han Solo. <laughs> like, I, was, I became like, I the only like actual cosplay I've ever really done is as as Han Solo, um, but you know like there's those moments of identification, and then there's the moments where you kind of peel off. Um, and I'd say that that's a lot of what I've gotten to hear, and particularly cross culturally, because I think it's easy for white people to assume whiteness as a kind of neutral blank slate or projective surface, um, when of course it's not. It's like yeah. very specifically racially coded. Um, and so like Leia was available to a lot of women, but not necessarily women of color, um, not necessarily women who were like, yeah, this is actually like, I, there's not a place. I can't jump that mm. to identify with this character. Not to say like that no women of color could, but to say among those who couldn't, um, her whiteness was like always mentioned um, and that often folks were able to kind of jump gender more easily than they could race. So it was like, I'm going to identify with Luke. I'm going to identify with Han. These are going to be my favorite characters um, because, you know, white womanhood in particular is a really deeply culturally coded mm-hmm. um, and weird thing. Um, and so like I was really compelled by as many of the things that people loved about Leia as I was the ways in which folks came to have an appreciation of her in their adult life, but didn't find her accessible as children because of those those kinds of um, issues around identification. And you, you think about just like how that, you know, if, they, if there's only one woman in any given franchise, um, like what does that mean then for, you know, for folks of color, for queer folks, for disabled folks who like, you know, we never see ourselves in any of the places. Um, one of the stories that I'm getting to, I'm actually editing right now, is about the um, Diné translation of A New Hope that happened a few years ago as a part of Navajo language preservation. So I got to interview the woman who was the voice actor for Princess Leia, and also the woman who was the voice actor for C-3PO, which is really exciting that there was a woman <laughs> voiced uh, C-3PO and did like Navajo with a British accent, which is like really, you know, kind of amazing. Um and it was interesting hearing them both talk, um, and also folks who were involved in the translation about the like profound parallels um, that they had between the sort of Star Wars story and their own, you know, sort of like origin stories and their own cultural stories in terms of like, you know, the sort of stories of like, you know, the significant power of the twins and um, also like, you know, the significance of hair buns and hairstyles um, in Navajo culture, as well as then seeing it. Like it was a relatable story. The woman who played um, Leia was like, no, I knew this woman. This is the woman from my family. Like I could play this woman. So it was always nice to see those archetypes kind of, um, you know, sometimes it's a, um, it's a gap that you just can't jump over. And sometimes it's like, oh no, I see this. This is, this is another version of the thing that I have in my family too. So um, I have a lot of gay male friends Um and there are sort of two like cultural touchstones over the generations that we often talk about. One of which um, is the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Um, mm-hmm. And there's like, I mean, folks that are like a little older than me. Um, I just I know a bunch of them around here that like they under like they came to understand themselves as gay 
through the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Um, in, yeah. in, in particular, like going to the like late night performances um, for a really good friend of mine, like it, it was the first place he ever found a community. You know, anywhere. It, you know, growing up in Wisconsin and like these, you know, places where there there might not have been. You know, he didn't know anyone else that was like even kind of like him. Um, and the other is uh, the other is the X Men. Like for people that are sort of like a, oh, like a little X Men too, right? Yep. Yeah, you know, just I mean, and, you know, I uh, I mean, I have a particularly like like the sort of group of gay friends that I hang out with a lot with um, are like video gamers and comic book folks. But I mean, I think it pans a, a you know or spans a lot of uh, the community as well. That like they identified with this like team of freaks yeah. that like people that were, had a, a, a talent and a little bit of, you know, some kind of a weakness and they all got together and like, no one mm. cared if you were made of ice or sucked people's powers or had knives for hands <laughs> or, was yeah. a, you know, like, um, and I also, it, it, it seems also like um, that there's some element of that in, in star Warsdom in general. Um, mm. I mean, it, it's hard to, I mean, like when I was a kid, like I had them all on like a single VHS tape, which we had copied from rentals <laughs> yeah. before there was oh, Macrovision, yes. you know? Yep. <laughs> you know, and, and it was, we, we, we were a tiny little group of geeks and it was something, you know, that, that felt very small and ours and unique. Um, as mm. I got older, you know, it of course is gigantic and world spanning and it yeah. isn't the same way. Um, but it, there does seem to be like a, I don't know, uh, uh, for the women that you've interviewed, um, it, it seems like there's some of that there as well. Like, they might not have found another place, but like this place, like yes. looking to Leia, being mm. in the Star Wars world, there there was space there where they found community or a place to belong or somebody, you know, like some place where they could be or find themselves echoed somewhere, yeah. you know, in the yeah. vast media world. Because um, I, yeah. I mean, I... Eli and I often, when we talk about films, I, like I'm big on the archetypes. Like I'm, mm -hmm. like I, uh, a lot of my academic training was like <laughs> studying uh, like the great epics of India and and whatnot. And so I, I really, you know, I just think that they're like, you know, the first things that we ever did as human beings had to have been some manner of epic story. Like mm -hmm. I'm, I'm sure that it involved something like that. You know, thousands of years back. And so they're they're just kinds of stories that humans tell. They've been telling for a long time. And one of the things that I I did not appreciate when I was younger was like how unique Leia is as a character. Mm -hmm. mm. Um, there's something that I, you know, even I'm just, I'm rewatching the original Han shot first trilogy with my wife. Um, and she, you know, she didn't watch them every month when she was a kid. She's maybe only seen <laughs> them. Twice. So I was like, Han shot first. Yes. Oh, go yeah, ahead. Yeah, go, yeah. Sorry. Uh, um, that she's really remarkably like from the moment she is on screen, like, she's remarkably taking nothing from no mm -hmm. one, you know, um, in a way that like, you know, and I, you know, like I've seen it so many times, I just assumed it, but sort of watching it again after having seen it for a while, I was like, you know, and she saves herself. Like the, like yeah. the self-rescuing princess is, is, you know, like almost this new kind of archetype. Mm -hmm. Like two bumbling fools go to, you know, go to uh, attempt to save her and sure they open the door, but I mean like she's the reason they get out of there. Um, and she doesn't, I don't know. She just doesn't let up at, at any point. Um, and like the way you described, it, like she doesn't, she never seeks permission from anyone. Because mm. I mean, it, which is I had never said that out loud before. Um, but it like that's absolutely like a a, a perfect way to describe it. Because when I think about like I mean there there are, there are some other films that Eli Eli and I often joke about like Krull. Mm. Um, have you ever seen Krull? Do you know? <laughs> oh yeah. 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 I mean, classic. I have I have like. 
deep love because for that movie because it was always I and whatever. But um, you know, but if I <laughs> but like if I look at Star Wars nineteen seventy seven and then I look sideways to like other films, there's like no one like Leia anywhere. Yeah, the females yeah. do not stand out. Yeah. Um, and you know, and at some points, you know, like it. Even knowing that it was made in 1977, it also, like, you know, I encountered it in 1984 or something, you know, when I was mm-hmm, three. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it seems, I don't, you know, I, I don't mean to praise so much, but I mean, it seems almost out of place in time with, mm. the, the, way, with the way that Leia does stuff. Like, there's no, and, you know, and, and, there, and there's certainly other, like, women who do things in films, but they suffer consequences, you know? Like, there's, right. there are mm-hmm. codes about behavior and representation, Um uh, and I it, well, and I do think you know. I think what is true is we didn't see a lot like Leia on film, but we were definitely seeing her in culture because 1977 yeah. is also like the peak of second wave feminism, yeah. and there's this sort of like you know Gloria Steinem esque movement that is very much around. We're going to stop asking permission. We're going to start yeah. demanding respect, um, and you know those things do go hand in hand. Like all of our, all the films that we love have a, have a culture bound, time bound context to them. Um, And then I think what's also true is we tend to be very slow in getting to see representation on screen that mirrors what's in the cultural milieu. Um, And we're just starting to kind of catch up with that. And actually I feel like Marvel's doing a really interesting job with that, um, both in terms of not, not since the new 52 reboot, but the, the sort of like redo of the Marvel characters, um, the Marvel comics, um, mm-hmm. but also, um, you know, with projects like that Black Panther, um, mm-hmm. where you're just starting to see the like resonance. And then of course the entire culture is like, yeah, that we're going to yeah, all line up that, for that. Yeah. Get ready for that to make billions and billions of dollars. Sorry, I interrupted. Keep going. No, no, I, I was waiting for you to interrupt my thing and tell me interesting stuff, which you just did. Great. Um, my job is done. <laughs> but so can you talk some more about like the like what was what going on culturally in the 70s? I mean, like a little bit of like how like second wave feminism inter- intersects with Star Wars a little bit more. Well, I mean, it's hard. For, I hear I think that the biggest thing that was happening in the 70s was that we had this like burgeoning moment in American cinema, right? This is the cinema that I was um, raised on. This is the um, Spielberg, Landis, Scorsese, Coppola, Lucas, um, this like these American masters creating what is essentially independent studio funded film. Um, And you know, many of my favorite films um, all come from this genre. Um, And also this is the genre for me that as a filmmaker, I can say, yeah, this, this was the, the period in American cinema that made me both love cinema and love films and never believe I could be a filmmaker. (laughs) Because if you look through the pages of American cinematographer magazine from 1977, um, all the way through, you know, certainly through the 80s, not on any page will you see a woman. Um, Certainly, you're not going to see like women of color. Um, Not even in the advertisements, not even something sexy trying to sell you a lens. Like it is just this overwhelming wall of white cis manhood Um, and, you know, talented, epic and great white cis manhood, but also in a way that is very like, you know, you, you want to be that one woman on a spaceship because that's going to be what it's like if you want to go to film school. That's going to be what it's like if you want to go and work on a set. Um, 
And so I do think it's important as we look at these characters to like the biggest cultural context for me is that these these few women were still all written by men. They were all kind of created in that way. I think that Lee Brackett had an amazing hand in Leia's character growth in Empire. Um, and I think certainly Marsha Lucas had a huge hand in the like editing bay in terms of like the way that that whole story was told. Those are really significant contributions. Um, but the fact that I can count those on a couple of fingers is really meaningful. So, so I look at, and this is not in any way like limited to Star Wars. This is like all of cinema. Um, so I can think about the cultural resonance, but it to me is less compelling than the films I'm looking forward to, which um, are going to be this like I'm looking forward to the Star Wars films that are going to be told by by women, by voices I haven't before. And I know that they're out there. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm just going to sit here waiting patiently. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it, it has the statistically speaking, it has it to has happen. <laughs> um, but you know, one of the things like I, I managed to, um, <laughs> there's like no, there's no like smooth way of saying this. I managed to get Hamilton tickets in the course of also being in production on looking for Leia. Which is like good on you. Know, you. Yeah. yeah. It, and it was like they were very inexpensive. I don't know. I had friends who had seen it at the public in New York, and I was in New York, and I get mm -hmm. this like call at 10 in the morning, like Hamilton. And I was like, yes, what do I have to cancel to go see Hamilton tonight? Um, and it was this epically life changing, mm -hmm. annoying moment, right? Because everyone should get to have access to this. Um, yeah. But there's this central theme throughout, which is right who tells, who tells your story? Yeah. And I think who tells your story is everything. And so I think we've got um, like what, what I'm compelled about in terms of the interviews and the things that women have told me about is absolutely who they identify with and how they identify. And I will say that like huge numbers of women identified with male characters that like the, the character identification was yeah. definitely cross gender. But that also it's just interesting for me to hear the fandom story from a different perspective maybe the exact same content, but it's just another lens. So I do feel like that who tells your story is, um, is sort of everything to me right now. Uh, and, and I want that. I mean, it's one of the reasons why I love Claudia Gray yeah. and Delilah Dawson. Like, I think there's so many spaces where we can get that content. Mm -hmm. um, that's, um, you know, I think the Clone Wars is like also a, a really like kind of amazing um, experience of that as well with, um, Carrie Beck and also Katie Lucas, who created my favorite arcs, the the Night Sisters arcs in the Clone Wars animated series. Like, I want more of those voices because Don't even they get are. Jeremy started on Ahsoka. Yeah, so. Ahsoka is by <laughs> far the most interesting and well developed character in all of Star Wars. <laughs> nice, nice, yeah. right? Yeah. So, like those, those are like, I think that. I think that these, what I love about science fiction and fantasy is that they are completely unbound to current events, but then through allegory and, um, and you know, the kind of monomyth and the symbolry can speak to it, right? Like there's a reason why we're all just like, you know, completely gaga over Game of Thrones. There's a reason we can like tap into the Avengers. Um, although the Avengers has, well, it's set in the world, but it's not right. Yeah. Um, like they're it, it's you know it's magical New York, um, but I, I think that they serve an incredible purpose. They give us a scrim upon which we can imagine things the way we want. They let us play out conflicts that we can't get out of in our daily lives in more satisfying ways in fiction. Mm -hmm. They allow us to grieve. They allow us to celebrate all the things. 
I, I think we I had this thought after I had watched um, Hannah Gatsby's performance. Um, have Have you seen that? Not that, yeah. I mean, I like watched it once, and then like immediately watched it again. I just like went to the <laughs> beginning. And I was like, wow. Um, but I had this 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 phrase was like bouncing around in my head. It and it was kind of like I don't even know. How to, but it's like uh, in in a world in which we are now, where there's some of these like post-truth elements creeping around. Um, post-truth. It, 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 it seems like like the power of a story is even greater. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, because it's, it, you know, like if we're dispensing with like facts a little bit in certain places more than others, um, when someone has a compelling story, um, it, it, it seems to have more power. Like it, it resonates further. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, and you can see it in good and bad ways. Like you can see it with the way the conspiracy theories in certain circles of the internet circle. Um, but there's also a way in which you can just retell the story. Mm-hmm. And I mean, this is one of the things that I often talk about um, with uh, The Last Jedi. I mean, you know, I grew up, like all of us nerds were like passing around the Jedi Academy books and reading them, yeah. you know, right? Um, <laughs> you know, but like, so we, we get to like, they literally both exist in the same world. Like we yeah. have that version of Luke and we have mm-hmm. the grisly version of Luke, which right. I absolutely love in The Last Jedi. We have both of them. You know, yeah. and if you look at, you know, if you look at the parallels in um, like mythology or, or epic poems or whatever, like there are hundreds, if not thousands of versions of those people's yep. stories. And they're, yeah. they all- I mean, comic books every- too, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? Like geeks have a model for this. Comic yeah. books, comic people books. Are, you know, these characters are constantly dying and being reborn in different ways. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, the unique thing about Star Wars is it does have this complicated, like, history with that that yeah. I think George Lucas struggled with. And I grew up, like, he was my idol um, mm. creatively, so I still have a lot of respect for him. Um, but I think he struggled with, like, this is my story that I'm telling when, like, so many people grasped onto it and said, no, like, I see myself in these. This is my story. Yeah. And I think um, kudos to him that I think eventually he let that go. Um, and kind of turned it over to the public almost and said, let's tell new stories. Um, but I think that is the unique thing. And especially in this age, I think Jeremy touched on it at the beginning of our conversation that, you know, uh, with the Internet and um, mass communication, that we can kind of have this shared experience where we can um, yeah. write our own fan fiction. We can create our own short films and we can tell those stories from our perspective um, yeah. in the sort of. Uh, whatever look we want those characters to yeah. be. Well, yeah. and like the, it's the Hamilton connection. Like, um, I, I I had I was tutoring um, uh, uh, a high school student, which is one of the things I do as a junior, um, at like a very prim and proper house <laughs> on the rich side of town. Um, and like I would go into his house, and we would sit at the kitchen table, and we would <laughs> sit down. And he's like, "Oh, you gotta listen to this. You got you gotta you gotta do this thing, Hamilton." And I was like, "Yeah, I mean, I like I love music. I love musicals." Mm-hmm. But I'm like, you know, I don't know. And he's yeah. like, no, you got to listen to it. And so he puts on the first track, you know, and it's like all that filthy language. His mother's just like, oh, my. And I was like, <laughs> I, I got to listen to this. Yeah. Um, and what? And I just sort of, you know, started like Googling all over the place. Like, how did I miss this? Like, how, <laughs> how have I never heard this brilliance before? And I came across this article in the New York Times, which just, it was just like, Hamilton is fan fiction. Oh, yeah. Um, it, fanfic. Right? And I was like, yeah, my mind is now blown a second time. Because uh-huh. that is absolutely true, and it's like it's a you know I mean something you know I mean I I don't know how to speak about non derisively something that was just sort of like people talking to each other about something that they loved 
has birthed an entirely new, amazing genre of. I mean, like, like I don't know the the the, the kind of thing that Hamilton is um, as historical polyglot fan fiction um, uh, is something I'd never seen before. You know, and I, you yeah. know, like it's successful and all that other stuff, but like it, it just opened my mind to the possibility that regardless of intellectual property or blah blah blah, there are amazing stories to be told oh. um, about people's relationships to these characters or these mm-hmm. things. Um, you know, and that, that that includes some element of that and some element of their own version of the story. Absolutely. You know, so Maggie Nowakowska, who um, you referred to, she's in this 11-minute clip that we have on our website, yeah. um, has this epic archive of fanzines in her um, kind of, you know, spectacular basement office that I just want to live in. Um, and, you know, came to Star Wars fandom um, at 28 years old, like came to Star Wars in 1977 as a full-fledged grown-up from Trek fandom. And um, then became um, a very prominent fan fiction writer. And so there's a couple of things about Maggie. The, the one is that she, um, if she knows I'm talking about her, I'm sure will turn beet red, is <laughs> the, the most astoundingly um, good writer. So I've, I've gotten to read a lot of um, a, lo- a lot of these zines from the like 70s and 80s and in the 90s. Yeah. And the quality of these stories are like these are canon stories. These are stories that like hold up to if not surpass the EU in terms of their like written quality. Mm-hmm. And they're fascinating to read because of course they happened especially the 1977 to 1980 ones before we knew how the original trilogy wrapped up so there's this incredible world building that folks were doing um within george lucas's world because the conclusion hadn't even been written yet so these women were writing all of the interstitial stories all of the their own conclusions so you know um archive of our own has a huge amount of these there are just like really great places online. Like read, read vintage. Is it vintage now? Fan, uh, fan works. <laughs> read current fan works. Like fan works are where it's at. But then Maggie's also um, brilliant, and I'm kind of living inside her interview right now, so it's very like fresh on my mind. But she has this this wonderful moment where she talks about how George Lucas gave us the bones. Mm. He gave us his version of Star Wars, mm. um, and then everyone else made their version of it, mm. and that there are as many Star Wars as there are people who have watched it and that whatever Star Wars is your first Star Wars, that's yours. Whichever one you have the first emotional reaction to, mm-hmm. that's yours. It can never be taken away. It can never be, you know, delegitimized or, or dequalified. The EU exists and is vibrant and people still get those stories fully. I am really kind of conscientious in all of my kind of work to talk about EU and canon. There's no verses. There's a both and. Like these two bodies of work exist, one of which has to conform to a multi-billion dollar film studio that needs to get some story continuity straight. So I will give them that (laughs) because it's really hard to make films, I will tell you from experience. But just, you know, it's the, the robustness within which she could describe that we're all right. Everybody gets it. You get mm-hmm. Jedi Academy Luke. You get Grouchy um, Octo Luke. It's all available. Um, and I feel like that abundance is something I hear in interviews a lot. I could hear a lot of both and. And it's soothing to me because I think that um, the internet would maybe make us think that it's a lot more binary and hostile than right. that. But it's nice to be reminded that actually when we're talking about things that we love, like the more the merrier. Like, yes, more Mm -hmm. things we love. It doesn't disqualify anything. It's fun to listen to why a person loves a thing. 
Like that's that's mm-hmm. kind of infectious and great, and we should do more of it. Yeah, and I think that there's um, uh, like I've read um, I read Leia Princess Valderon, um, and I I was can I just uh, say the last page of that book? I like made a sound, and then I think I swore out loud, <laughs> and I sort of f you, Claudia Gray, because it was just so impacting. <laughs> I was yeah, just like, well, I was oh. I mean, like you know, like it, it's a fairly thick book. You know, and like it, it's a very short period of time in her life, and I'm like, this is it. This is this. Like, can I have like three to four, maybe five more of these books, please? <laughs> um, but th- there's this. I mean, I, like I was really taken aback. Eli and I talked about it on the show too, about like the vociferous reaction to the Last mm-hmm. Jedi and the man complaining about it. And so, I, I mean, I was a little bit happy to, re- to to hear that some of it was a result of Russian bots Russian doing bots, things. Yeah, yeah. Um, 40% but, of the most vitriolic. That's actually a lot. Right. <laughs> yeah. Because um, I remember being like, how is it, like, how are people that upset about it? I mean, right. I mean, like, come on. I mean, there's this thing that I say all the time. It's about, you know, Peter Jackson and the Lord of the Rings. I mean, like. If if you have any complaints about it, I mean, I'm always like, but he he made them for us, you know, like, and he didn't screw it up. So like, mm-hmm. you at least owe, you know owe him that. I mean, like, th- like I remember, you know, in the '80s when you know uh, watching the Star Wars, like there was, we were fairly convinced there was never going to be more Star Wars, right? Ever there was that time, right? you know? Yeah. Um, so oh my god, in a world so of abundance in that way. Um, yeah. But I do think that, like, um, you know, as I've you know like. Uh, started reading, you know, into fandom and, and learned about websites like the Mary Sue and, and others. Um, I, I like it, it's just a different conversation about, again, like focused on why we love this thing and why mm. this thing is great and less about silly man things like, you know, <laughs> arguing about who knows more about something, which is, you know, part of what it was as like a teenager, like, you know, counting the amount of, you know, laser blasts that happened and all Statistics. that. Stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, like yeah. base, the baseball of Star Wars. Uh, it's, and, it's statistics. Yeah, seriously. Yeah. And, but, and I just think like, uh, for me as a person, it's much more enjoyable and, and there's so much more commentary and stuff in the fan world that like, I, you know, as I teach my kids about this media that I love that I'm like, Oh, we, let's read this article or like, let's watch this person's video about it. I mean, there's like, there's so much more, um, that's positive and engaging and like enhances the reading experience than I think there was 10 years ago. I mean, yeah, um, yeah, like I remember totally. watching, um, uh, silent Bob and I can't remember his real name. Um, like Kevin Smith. Yeah. yeah, Kevin, yeah Kevin, Smith. I remember watching like Kevin Smith's, like he just went and watched the last Jedi and then oh, he sort the of, um, yeah. analysis of it. And, and it was, and I mean, I, I loved him growing up. Um, and, you know, and he has this, he has a lot of, like, really cool suggestions as a fan. Um, and mm-hmm. he spends a lot of time being like, oh, this is it's super awesome. I really like this. You know, maybe, you know, like, they would ask me about it, you know. <laughs> and one of the things that I, uh, well, uh, I won't digress on this too long. But so, um, uh, do you know, like, the Hamilton mixtape and sort of the, like. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, uh, and you know the song, um, uh, A New Kind of Stupid, I think it's called, where, like, um. Uh, and, and Angelica uh, accosts um, Hamilton for like sending the letter. Yes. So uh, in our family, we just assume that's in the show. We know it's not, <laughs> but like it's so good that it should be. Nice. And we and we also just assume that first burn is also in there. Right. Right. We just, of course it is. Yeah. This is the Hamilton of your mind. These right. things are all in it. And so in the Kevin Smith one, he talks about like um like uh the the part that I like the most. He talks about how how chewy 
communicates to Luke that mm. Han has been killed. Mm. And the way Kevin Smith describes it is like, well, just imagine if like Chewie does his like Chewie talk mm. and it's not subtitled and we just get to see Luke's face instead of, right. you know, change at all these moments. And I was like, that's so good. I'm just going to say that that happened. <laughs> you know, because the I moment is cool. You. But yeah, yeah. that's like. Is real. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, and that's, I think, yeah. Go, go I ahead. think for me, the thing that was the saddest, I mean, there were so many things um, in so many different ways around that backlash, which mm-hmm. felt like a microcosm of larger toxic ridiculousness happening right like that didn't feel in any way limited to star wars we were we're, we've been having a moment for the last two years Mm -hmm. um one could argue we've been having a moment for the last 400 but (laughs) you know it's been extra peaky the last two years um but you know so immediately when that backlash happened i i was um one of these people who i i loved it the very first moment that i saw it like i was sitting Mm -hmm. in the theater blown away like from the opening sequence and it was not confusing to me and I was just like I see everything that you're doing and oh my god they made a Star Wars film for my 44 year old at the time self Mm -hmm. like they they made the film for like grown-up me who grew up watching these films um and then the backlash and then like oh I didn't like that started happening and I was like oh yeah you know I can see it'd be polarizing and then the backlash happened and the petitions happened and I got like really a little scared because I was like, hey, wait, this is as many folks of color as I've ever seen on a, mm. on screen in a Star Wars film. Yeah. This is like, this is the characterization I want. These are the movies I want. So like, I'm really nervous that you're going to start saying this is not, you know, safe or profitable and they're going to stop doing this. I need mm-hmm. significantly more of this. And I mean, like, so I, was, I was in that for a minute, but now I feel like actually one of the biggest casualties of that backlash were folks who didn't like it who yeah. get lumped in with the, like, 40% of Russian bots yeah, right. <laughs> and, like, the three really angry, like, white nationalists who are angry about effing everything yeah. and, you know, figured that Star... Like, I think it's actually really telling that of all the things Russian bots go after, destabilizing Star Wars <laughs> fans is seen as destabilizing the nation. If we can link in America, if we can get them at Star Wars. Us as a fan base, like, yeah, we can destabilize the nation with this. And powers. it felt like it did, yeah. right? I mean, but I, I do, do think we lost a lot of space for folks to just get to be like, oh, yeah, that wasn't my thing yeah. and not be like lumped in with this group. Like, you know, True. you don't like a thing. You let it go. You love a thing. You hold on to it. And then, yeah, you swap out parts. Yeah. I wanted more breathing time for Luke. The deleted scene mm-hmm. um, on the DVD I thought was brilliant. I have chosen that to be in my version of the film. Yeah. In the special in your mind director's cut. It's in well, and it was in his right. It was cut. It was yeah. actually in. It was like Ryan Johnson shot it, and it really worked for me. And I was like, oh yeah, great. I see why they cut it in the film, and also I've just decided to put that back in. I mean, uh, like one of the functions as like for a fourteen-year-old me of like the Jedi Academy path with Luke is that like after all the craziness of Darth Vader and Darth Sidious, like the the universe goes back to being nice you know and it's yeah. and it's okay and it's right. a good place to be in and like evil is vanquished and it's happily ever after and so yeah. i think part of the the last jedi different version of it is that like you can't take away like eden from us like right. you know he fought so hard yeah. and of course like for me i'm all like yeah so what happens when you defeat empire yeah. is like historically <laughs> you have a brief moment of reconstruction followed by a horrible horrible backlash yeah, and so that's the thing and so like the whole rise of the first order and all of that i was like yeah 
That's exactly how that's going to happen. And I was like, you don't even need um, to explain it to me. I'm like, yes, that totally happened. Yeah, right? I know. But of course, when you're 14, um, that is not... I mean, when I was 14 also, though, I would have been on the like, no, but let me tell you what happens when Empire falls because I was, you know, and I think for Amnesty International and was deeply concerned about, like, colonialism. Um, we're all different 14-year-olds. And we all, we all, like, you know, want a different conceptualized worldview. Like, I also love zombie films. Um, yeah. They... They soothe something. They soothe my conta- my contagious disease disaster, um, <laughs> which is you know like a thing I've lived through. Like you know like yeah. having been an AIDS activist and lived mm-hmm. through the eighties and having lost my entire community. One would think yeah. that like you know infectious disease disaster would not be my genre of choice, but I find it very cathartic. Yeah. Um, like all disaster in a way, it's just sort of like oh yeah okay. I mean maybe less so now. Honestly, <laughs> natural disaster way less so these no, days. Yeah. Just like, oh, that's too yeah. soon. I mean, I like uh, some parts of my childhood were fairly traumatic. So I, I've always found disaster films comforting because it's like there, there's nowhere else to go. Like <laughs> there is a giant asteroid plummeting towards Earth. We will all die in about two days. You know, <laughs> um, and like someone's gonna go fight it, right? Someone's yeah, gonna go drill it and put it. a bomb in it. Um, you know, it, it makes you know in some sense. Like if you said you were a Buffy fan. I mean, there's that uh, like when she when when her mother passes away. You know, like mm-hmm. that really remarkable episode. Like she just. Um, she blames it on glory. It's actually not her. She just wants like someone, something that she can fight and punch. And yeah. this, this true evil in her world, the death of her mother, is just because she was sick. Um, yeah. And there's no, there's that. no evil anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. It just is and terrible. Yep. Yeah. Um, I just have but to say, uh, fantasy. It takes care of us. I feel like it does. It it yeah. it, it hits all of those places that are about archetypal grief and trauma and longing and lets us move through them i think in ways that are safer than we experience in our actual lives and often cathartic and have an outcome that we need yeah um i know that i mean for me like watching star wars as a kid and also like the animated we had had the animated lord of the rings so like the rankin and bass has a ralph bakshi version then the rankin and bass i mean i used to watch them like every you know, month when I was a kid. Yeah, yeah. Nice. Um, and it was, you know, and it, it, it was like, I'm, I'm exa- I exaggerate sometimes, but it was like a religious experience. I mean, it's like mm, to sit mm. down at the beginning, you know, or to come in at the middle, you know, because I, mm-hmm. I like, there's something about Empire that like, if my brother started watching it, I would always somehow get hooked right at the end of Empire, like <laughs> either in the cloud city or when he gets his hand cut off. That's when I uh-huh. would jump in for the end of Empire and then Jedi all the way through. E- even <laughs> nice. if I like, had not committed to watching it, you know, at mm-hmm. that point. Right. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, because you and you said you're original, you started the original trilogy in 84. So you were the target age for Jedi. Is that yeah. right? Yeah. 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 Um, and I, I didn't, I never saw them in the theater. Um, my dad was fairly like cheap. So we had like an old VCR and a new VCR. And like I said, before <laughs> Macrovision, we would rent movies from the, like the oh, yeah. grocery store and then copy them. And yeah. then we had, you know, our own stuff on. I remember when you rented the machine, we would go to the yeah, place, yeah, we did that rent the machine, this like brick of a thing, this 72 pound, <laughs> like yeah. Betamax player and bring it home with all the RCA cables. The yep. kids these days don't know. Fighting off a brontosaurus. Yeah. For, <laughs> for how much home. I like, you know, deal with screens with my kids, yeah. we would like rent a VCR and then have to rent like four or five movies. Yeah, then, yeah, you yeah. Know? To make and we'd just be like, watch them right? all weekend. And yeah. our parents were like, well, yeah, you got to like use the machine yeah. if you're going to. 
you'd sign up for them. I was always the person that was like, I was always, I was always checking out like Empire Strikes Back and Sid and Nancy, just like uh, on a, like my, my, my place is like, who yeah. is this crazy goth child who's coming in just <laughs> yeah. wanting to watch this like on a loop? And where's her little brother who was, I'm sure who they figured I was renting Empire from. <laughs> yeah. And I'm a similar age as Jeremy, but I don't, I didn't see them in the theater either, but they are like, I never didn't know Star Wars in my consciousness. Yeah, so it really is like my mythology, you yeah. know, like I don't remember the first time I watched it because they were just always there. Yeah. Um, so it, it is a powerful thing in that way. And I think maybe, like you said, there is kind of this next generation that either had the prequels or these new Disney films. People coming to it late don't always kind of understand that, I think. It's a different thing. I mean, I always like to remind folks, like I I saw A New Hope in the theater and I saw it like every week the following seven years. It was in the theater for a whole year. So in 1978, yeah. when I was five, you know, mm -hmm. like, you know, as a as a tiny, tiny latchkey child, um, you know, with my two working parents, they would try to ship me off to various summer camp things. And I just went to see Star Wars every week. And my mom would be like, I would try, I would try to get you to do other things. And right. you're just like, no. Nope. And, you know, like at the kind of theater within walking distance, because in the 70s, we would let our five year olds walk to things. Um, yeah. But, you know, like, so I loved it. But I was like Empire age when Empire came out. Yeah. And we spent three full years after Empire <laughs> convinced Darth Vader was lying to Luke to get under his skin or get in his head. So when everybody's just sort of like, Kylo's not telling the truth, Kylo is telling the truth. I'm like, y'all, you're gonna get to find out in like less than three years, keep your pants on. Like we waited three full years, we had full on theories. There was a huge gap between those films. There's no internet um, to communicate with each other. It was yeah. all nothing? like in the schoolyard and your through feelings. magazines. Total Totally. But it's I do think like so my I have this generational perspective of like, of course, we're left all debating mm -hmm. and you don't know what it is until you get there. And probably and this is like also filmmaker self, it's entirely possible that filmmakers don't know either. Yeah, right. It's entirely it's possible true, yeah. that like there's a meta plan and then mm -hmm. like plot points get shifted around because it does. I also think that like original trilogy fans got to have an experience of disappointment if they didn't like the prequels mm -hmm. and then got to have yeah. the experience once they grew out of it a little bit um, of knowing that like, hey, it's okay to not like a thing other folks do and maybe just like get to hear about why they like it. So, you know, we get to bring those lessons, I think, mm -hmm. forward into our fandom. And I'm grateful to have had those lessons. Um, but also like I had a moment Probably like I guess it was like the Force Awakens into Jedi moment where I was like I'm gonna go bankrupt if I keep buying things because I went through that oh. dark period right where there was no merch yeah and now oh, not only yeah. is there merch but there's merch for women there's like T-shirts that fit me and I I bought all, like I don't own a shirt that doesn't have Star Wars on it <laughs> it's like it's too much but I just it was just this like hoarding like depression era I'm gonna buy all the Star Wars merch and bury it in my backyard because we all went without for so long yeah I mean um, I just remember when I was and a it's kid, hard to, like. You know, like the one guy who had the X-Wing, you know, and like the other guy had, I mean, and they were like, I mean, yeah. they were like more expensive than my parents would spend on stuff. Mm -hmm. I mean, they were essentially like gods, these people, yeah. you yeah. know, yeah. and, and we yeah. would like go over and like they would, and like, where I, like they, they were on a special shelf. Like these mm -hmm. were like, you know, only if you like wash your hands and threat, you know, promise not to break anything. Yeah, stuff. right. Yeah, I mean, we I went on and we had the Cloud City like dual oh, pod yes. thing. Yeah. That was as big as I got. <laughs> like that Tauntaun was then the what what's yeah. the what's the Cloud City ship called? I want to call car. it like it's cloud a pod car? something other. It's a cloud car? I think it's a cloud car. Oh really? Great. Yeah. I had one of those and yeah. I had the Tauntaun. 
Yeah, we went to The Force Awakens with my uh, son, and like immediately after, I was like, we're just going to the store and buying some stuff. (laughs) And he was just kind of like, what? You're going to go buy toys? And I was like, like, yes. I know normally we say no, but I don't know what I'm going to buy, but we're going to go get stuff. I I need it. It's like a whole um, I do love talking to Star Wars parents. So um, I had a great interview with actually a woman who's one of our researchers as well, who, you know, huge Star Wars fan all of her life. She now has a daughter who is like prime Star Wars age, who's mm-hmm. just not taking to it, which mm-hmm. is really breaking her heart. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but she told the great story of um, taking her to see The Force Awakens, having seen it herself already, taking the daughter to see it. Yeah. And the scene where Ray pulls the, the lightsaber out of the snow, mm-hmm. which I think for so many of us, like, you know, there was like open weeping and yelling and snot bubbles like it was possibly as emotional oh as I've ever been in a movie theater she had the same experience and so she's like I can't wait for my daughter to see this I can't wait for my daughter to see this and her daughter was like eh Didn't really because like, well, her daughter's grown up with significantly better women heroes than yeah. we did so yeah. for her this is not the first time she got to see something like that she'd seen Ahsoka Tano she'd see women have lightsabers before and for us of course it's like oh my god I'm watching a Star War and the girl is gonna call the saber to her with the force and you know what's mind-blowing for us because we went without I love that this new generation is sort of like eh call me call me when there's something like really groundbreaking happening mm-hmm. well on that subject one of the reasons why I really like the last jedi amongst other things was rose's character and i know like a lot of the you know the like yeah like the manternet got all grumpy pants about right. rose but i mean there's a whole like meta narrative like critique that like was never present in the original series mm. like yeah. she's like oh you know i mean because the finn's like yeah i'm a hero i'm gonna go like do this thing and she's like that doesn't mm. make any sense why are you yeah. running away from like yeah. the most important thing um, which is like, you know, when we would joke with ourselves, I'd be like, why is Luke like, what, like, why does Luke want to go to Tasha Station and power converters? You know, like, and it's like, you know, when in watching the, like, Luke's movement from, I'm going to stay here for my family to, uh, like, I'm going to go be a Jedi is like eight minutes, you know? Yeah. Um, and there, you know, and so like, uh, you know, like, and there's a lot of like really good fan making fun of all that stuff. Um, but like, wrote, like, Rose's character written in there and the way she participates in, in like, causing these you know like star wars skywalker-esque heroes to be critical about what they're doing and who they're abandoning and like who's dying on these ships um is fantastic Mm -hmm. Um, it's also our first introduction our first proper critique of capitalism and colonialism which of course are like you know the pillars of empire so it makes sense that like what is this galactic empire or the first mm -hmm. order like really trying to do well on the ground and the animated series do this like we get this in yeah. the Clone Wars and in Rebels. You really see yeah. the impact, the impact mm-hmm. of Empire, yeah. or in the Clone Wars, you get to see the beginning of the like you know rule. Like I, I love that political shift between like, hey, the good guys are actually really going to become the bad guys. They're gonna like, yeah, it's the best they're gonna part. codify into something bad. But yeah, this notion of like, no, really, like this is about um, colonial incursion. This is about like you know what happens to um, indigenous people when you come and strip mine mm-hmm. natural resources yeah. and like. Like, it's the first time we've seen class division on screen, and she's the she's the character that um, tells us that entire storyline. She opens up this huge part of the galaxy that, of course, I think has been covered in the EU. It's in the animation. We've seen it in other places, but she brings it to the trilogy films, um, and I just think that that can't be underestimated for or understated. Yeah, how important it is. 
and it's you know it's looking forward to stuff it's p- part of what's most exciting to me right because sure i mean like i love a good romping story mm-hmm. but i also like you know i mean it's the empire right or the first order like this is can we take some like well-focused appropriate pot shots at some of the crappiest stuff humanity has done like mm-hmm. let's get it yeah. done you know yeah, seriously. I'm so like, you know, I don't have a wish list for nine, mm. except that I do have this like burning desire to get some sort of like, I guess now like Rose, Ray and computer generated Leia Organa, um, like seven minute long conversation that just every second of it passes the Bechtel test. That's all mm. I want <laughs> from nine. Yeah, just <laughs> it's just like they're the just scene. talking yeah. about like, you know, yeah, like organizing and stuff, mm. like not talking about boys, talking about how they're <laughs> getting it done um and like getting to be there and support each other getting Mm. to see each other in this way that they're all lifting each other up which if it doesn't happen to nine it will have happened in my own headcanon and so i will have it on some level because like my wish list includes like either the real or ghost ahsoka being involved oh my god (laughs) Um, you're going (laughs) because she like she especially like you know like ahsoka from rebels like she she has to be there. You know, I mean, and, and I mean, like when I was watching Rebels, like I was like, oh my gosh, like we get old Rex. I'm like, yes. Um, so, <laughs> I would, and I, I would love to see some like, like old Rex and mm. uh, Ahsoka in there at some point. Give me a cameo, you know. <laughs> um, but, you know, I mean, else, yeah, I mean, I, I, I have, I know that they won't. Um, but I, mean, I would I love to see show up in the um, the television series because they're they're really giving us at least the one now that Diego Luna is going to be fronting. Oh my God, I'm so excited! Um, yeah, that's like period, yeah. right yeah. her era, yeah. So we've we've got. I mean, they have. They know. They know that they've created these like astounding universes that could start interconnecting in a way that yeah. will just be. You know, we will all just be there paying however much a month i like to call it disney plus by the way um, <laughs> i was like that is fantastic the disney plus news is the only news that has made me happy <laughs> for two years basically um and i cannot get enough of it and i'm so excited about all of the the things all the marvel also because you know television has such an incredible capacity for storytelling and we're in such right. a great moment right now in in particularly streaming network produced shows yeah. um the quality there is just epic and the ability to tell a story over a series arc versus having to s- squash everything in um right. that's i have higher hopes for those actually than i do the trilogy films at this point mm, yeah yeah it would be interesting to see what they do with those i mean my favorite part of star wars i think while i i always so attached to it is that it feels like such a big world that we can dive into any corner of this world and find interesting stories. And I don't think that's always true of sort of the uh, media or the fandom that we might enjoy, but it doesn't have that aspect. Like there just seems like infinite stories um, that we could explore in Star Wars and I would be on board with that. However, you know, small, whatever corner of the room conversation between aliens, I would be in for it. And time frames, right? Like, I mean, yeah. like, it is yeah. actual. Like, this is, like, mm-hmm. 41 years of world building, but they've definitely been doing their job yep. because there's so many, yeah, so many, like, regions and time periods to tell stories in. Um, so that's exciting as a fan, right, when you know that, like, that source material is in, like, a, it's in good production hands. Um, yep. Like, that level of storytelling is um, at that, you know, kind of tentpole level is not easy to do. Mm-hmm. And I, I think there's, um, I mean, this is a nice time to be a geek. Yeah. Is, is how I feel. Yeah. I mean, it that's, is. 
not a true not just a star wars fan but like a geek this is it's a Mm -hmm. it's a good time i mean it's also a horrible time because because of like you know gamergate and comicsgate and Mm -hmm. you know it's we are at apex men behaving badly um and i think there's like amazing communities and amazing material being produced and that makes me very happy well i have to say that i can't be more excited for your your film project um, in, what, in what form it comes out in. I think it's really going to have a strong connection to a big audience. And uh, I'm excited for all the different aspects that you're talking about of the way that it connects to different people that I don't think, even in something like documentaries, has not been talked about, and especially in geekdom and fandom. So I think that's uh, really admirable and exciting um, for me. Thank to you. About. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I'm excited about it. I'm really excited for folks to get to see it. I can appreciate like independent documentary film never works quite as fast as you want it to. Mm-hmm. And we've been blessed to go through two rounds of crowdsourcing. We have such incredible community support to help kind of get the project going. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do appreciate these things take a little longer to make than, you know, what we're used to with kind of commercially produced like television or things where, you know, traditionally you hear about a thing two months before it comes out, not yeah. right. <laughs> when it's going into production and now it's in post-production. But um, I love that folks have been watching us all along and, um, we're, you know, we're trying to take really good care of these stories and give folks something that um, will, yeah, bring communities across huge, um, fans across many, many, many different communities kind of together to get to hear a bunch of these stories. Mm-hmm. I'm really thankful that you um, came on our show today. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, oh, thank I'm, you guys. And, and I've checked, you know, like, you know, I've checked your work and heard some of your podcasts and stuff. Um, uh, it's really remarkable that you uh, gave us an hour and a half of your time. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. I thank you for letting me talk about Star Wars for an hour and a half. Yeah, like this yeah, is clearly yeah. this is my my happy spot. <laughs> if you want to do it again, we are always here. Yeah. Thank you. I love that. I'm just gonna call you when we're not on air sometime and be like, so. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk Star Wars. Yeah. Let's talk about Rancors. Yeah. Yeah. We'd be happy to. Uh, where can people find out more about your project and the work that you're doing? Folks should follow us on the social media. So we're at Looking for Leia on the tweets mm-hmm. and also um, at Looking for Leia series, I believe, on Instagram, facebook.com slash Looking for Leia. They could go to the just actual World Wide Web, lookingforleia.com. You can kind of sense the theme yeah. <laughs> that's going on there, right? Um, and uh, folks can find me personally through the Looking for Leia Twitter as well. I have a difficult to spell on air um, handle. If you have show notes, you can pop it in that. Yeah. Um, but you know, we, we love being able to connect with folks on social media. It's a really wonderful way for us to be kind of in touch with what folks are up to as well. And we hope to be making exciting announcements and getting to share news about um, when and where this project is going to be coming to, to life and how folks can connect with it um, next year. Nice. We'll be looking forward to that. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Yeah, thanks, Anna. Lisa. 